This is the Analyzing Anfield podcast on the Blood Red channel, bringing you the best tactical and statistical analysis of Liverpool FC. Hello and welcome to this week's episode of Analyzing Anfield, your tactics and analytics podcast, courtesy of the Blood Red channel. I'm Josh Williams and I'm joined again by Mo Stewart. Mo, you feeling any better this week, mate? A little bit better. Um, a little bit more lucid, a little bit more with it, I think, in general. Like, I watched last week's video back and I don't remember some of what I said, which is probably not a good thing. <laughs> but yeah, fighting fit and able today as much as is possible. Well, we are finally approaching the return of the Premier League. It feels like a long time since Liverpool last play, played a match in, uh, in domestically, that is. Um, but yeah, we have Brighton this weekend, so we're going to talk a little bit about that. And we're going to talk about kind of overriding themes, I suppose, generally in the past week or so. Some of them, well, most of them, I suppose, are to do with the international break, international friendlies, the Nations League and stuff like that. Um, but I'm, I'm not really sure where to start, to be honest, Mo. We can go in a, bit, a few different directions here. Any thoughts? <laughs> mm, well, I mean, I think the most interesting one, really, is the idea of who should be in the first team for Brighton. Because, like you say, it's been so long since we last put a team together and who we have available to us has changed in quite yeah. a few areas. So the idea of who's ready, who's would be best suited, who's in good form, and then looking to the fixes we've got ahead because we've got some pretty big fixtures. Like the next f- five, if you take the next five as a block up into Man City, you say you've got Brighton's, arguably maybe the easiest or maybe the lowest risk at this stage because of where we are in the Champions League. I'd say both of those games are important. And then we've got the top two teams at the moment in terms of title credentials and Arsenal and Man City. So with all of that in mind, if there's going to be any kind of, not necessarily experimentation, but any kind of rest rotation ideas, we might be seeing them in this game. That's kind of where I'm thinking. Yeah, okay. Well, um, I I think ahead of Brighton, obviously the international fixtures that have happened will will determine the squad a little bit. So some people tend to switch off a little bit during the international break for obvious reasons, not not much of an interest in the likes of England and things like that. So we'll provide a bit of an overview as to what's happened over the past two weeks, Mm. uh, which players have played a lot, which players haven't. One of the players who has definitely been rested is Trent Alexander-Arnold. I'm sure you're aware of this, Mo. Everybody's been talking about it. I don't think he's played a single minute. And for the second game against Germany in particular, he didn't even make the 23-man squad. What are your thoughts on on, on Trent and um, the whole Southgate thing out of interest? Um, My honest thoughts, first of all, is that this has been coming. Like... I have been of the opinion that Trent was gonna wasn't gonna go to the World Cup since pretty much before the end of last season. So you, you still th- still think that? I do, yeah. And okay. the reasons why I do think that isn't necessarily because of Trent Alexander Arnold, but because of the way Gareth Southgate wants his England to play, and the players who he sees as better options for him in that position. I mean, I don't want to get into necessarily get into the whole the childish element of the Reese James versus Trent discussion because it feels like you have to kind of slag one off to praise the other and I don't want to do that 
That's literally my point. My point is, is that these are both, and you can put Kieran Trippier in there as well. These are good players. The difference is, is that Reese James and Kieran Trippier have done what Gareth Southgate has asked him to do in an England shirt on repeated occasions. The reasons why Trent hasn't done that are many. He hasn't had as many chances. He's been injured at certain times. But the system that he wants to play, Gareth Southgate wants to play, isn't a system that Trent plays for Liverpool. It isn't a system that he plays very often. It isn't one that he's used to. So every time he has appeared for England, there's been massive pressure on him to prove all of us right, but also to try and do all these things he's not used to do and to play well. You're not giving him all of the best tools to succeed. So you're kind of on a hiding to nothing. And the ultimate um, kind of result of all of this is him being further down the pecking order than we would assume. Yeah, I mean, it is a weird one. Like, I can understand elements of it because he's obviously up against the likes of Reese James, sometimes Kyle Walker, Keaton Sippier is a good player. Um, but Trent is also pretty special. <laughs> um, like, if you, if you look at his numbers for the season, you know, just to provide a bit of an example, he, he's currently top of the Premier League for progressive passes on a total of 56, ahead of Joe Cancelo in second on 55. Joe Cancelo, for perspective, has played one game more than Trent. Mm-hmm. Funnily enough, third in the Premier League for that is Keaton Trippier on 46. But again, he's played almost two games more than Trent in terms of minutes, at least. Trent is also top of the league for switches of play and, and things like that. I think he's top of the league for expected assists. Or, in fact, he's no, he's not. But that's that's because of Kevin De Bruyne again has played a bit more than Trent. Mm-hmm. But in terms of uh, chances created and things like that, Trent is right up there. So he is quite a special player. But I, th- I think Southgate is almost he seems overly terrified of the fact that Trent isn't amazing defensively. Um, th- there's kind of an underlying narrative there, which Trent always has been. I do think there is something in it. I, I don't think it's a complete myth that Trent, you know, can't defend. I, I do think he is sometimes, he, he can be a bit of a, not a liability, but he, a bit of a weak link on the defensive side, mm-hmm. if you like. Uh, I don't, I think his one-on-one ability sometimes can not look particularly great in comparison to the other players at Liverpool, like Robertson's good 1v1, mm-hmm. I think. Van Dijk think, is obviously good 1v1. I think the, the thing I notice most with Trent is that he is more or not, more often than not, doing his defending after having done a sprint. Because positionally, he is normally higher up the pitch. So when we're in defending, if we're defending a counter-attack, he's having to get back into position and then defend. Now, that's not an excuse, but it will certainly be a reason why sometimes he's not as sharp. Because I think sometimes it's concentration with Trent when it's in terms of that one-on-one defending. That sometimes he knows what he's supposed to do, but sometimes he'll just let a guy get past him because maybe he's not at the sharpest. And sometimes that is to do with the the part of running he's doing. But one thing I did want to say as well about Trent, his defending is scrutinised more than all the other players we talk about. Maybe slightly restrained. Every time Trent doesn't do the right thing defensively. We all know about it. We all hear about it. We all remember it. Less so when he does. So I was looking, you mentioned before the comparison with progressive passes and all that kind of stuff. I was looking at the defensive numbers. This season, 
And a couple of things really jumped out at me. In terms of dribblers tackled, i.e. an attacker dribbling at you, how many times you tackled them? Now, Trent has tackled a guy four out of eight times, 50%. Okay. Reese James, three out of five times. That's 60%, a little bit better. Kieran Trippier, one out of 10. <laughs> so, like, those are the kind of numbers you would expect Trent to be getting based on the perception of his defending. So, yes, he's not perfect. Yes, there are things he needs to do better. But is he miles worse than all of the other options? Absolutely not. Analyzing Anfield on the Blood Red Channel. Yeah, this is this is kind of your point. I think I think Southgate is is almost played too much and believed too much in that the narrative that Trent is is like horrendous defensively when it's it's not quite that bad. Like I saw a, I saw a, a tweet the other day. I can't remember it specifically, but it it pointed out the games something like the last six or four games or whatever that Southgate has started Trent for England, and it's been against like San Marino. Liechtenstein, you know, Al Albania, or you know, all these all these countries that are basically not going to cause England defensive issues. So he's playing Trent as though he's like a real defensive passenger that you absolutely have to carry, like a you know, like a Ronaldo maybe, or or someone like that who literally will not defend, will refuse to defend. It's it's not quite. As dramatic as that, I think he needs to put into perspective a little bit that Trent's okay, he might be a bit weak on the defensive side than he is going forward, obviously. But he's not, he's not, for me, he's not more of a problem than Harry Maguire defensively. I think Harry Maguire at the moment is more defensively susceptible to causing problems for his team than Trent is. It, yeah. about, they're about level at the minute, to be honest. Um, <laughs> I mean, I, I think one thing I noticed with Harry Maguire, and I don't want to feel like I'm sticking the boot in because everyone is at the moment, but normally when there's a goal conceded by a team, you can go back and look at a range of mistakes. If you look at those two goals, particularly England conceded against Germany, like that was all his own work. Like the first one, he basically passed to the defense, to the German player, then tackled him, fouled yeah. him, gave away a penalty. I mean, that was bad. That. So, yeah, like football is complex. Football is joined up. Everybody's um, job is depending on his 10 teammates at most of the time. So it's rare that you can just say, just take that guy out and it makes a massive difference and everything's all right. But that might be the case with Maguire. I don't think it's the case with Trent. I think you're right in to say that he is such a special talent. I think the other thing that works against Trent is the cycle of this England team. Gareth Southgate and the way he wants to play it with the three centre-backs, with his Stones, Maguire and, and Walker or Eric Dyer, that this is going to be the last tournament of that. A new man is going to come in. There's no guarantee this new man is going to play three centre-backs. In fact, I think looking at the centre-back stocks within England, he'd be mad to. So there's going to be a new system for England. One that hopefully will be a little bit more suited to Trent with a manager who will be a little bit more amenable to what he really does bring to a team. I mean, if you if you look at Liverpool this season and how Liverpool have struggled in certain moments, some of it has stemmed, not necessarily from Trent, but be, because of how Trent behaves on the ball, the risks he takes, you do need the midfield department to sweep up the loose balls 
as like a byproduct almost of what Trent is trying to do when it doesn't come off. Mm-hmm. England, you, I think England now arguably do have that. If you look at if you look at the the midfield department that played against Germany, um, and we'll use this to move the conversation a little bit away from Trent and towards Jude Bellingham in particular. Uh, Southgate fielded Declan Rice and Bellingham as a double pivot, and. I thought Bellingham was outstanding. I thought he was brilliant, mate. Did you see the the performance? I did. I mean, I watched it at the time and he did kind of stand out, but I then rewatched it and and kind of looked a little bit deeper into what he was doing. The things I love about his game the most is that he came into that game with a lot of spotlight on him, not just because of all the speculation transfer-wise, but he's playing against Germany, the country where he makes his trade, and playing against teammates and all of those things. And yet, he wasn't trying to be the hero. He wasn't trying to say, look at me, everybody. He was doing at all times the best thing to move the ball forward for his team. And you notice it. And sometimes it's shielding the ball from two players and then passing it out. Sometimes it's dropping a shoulder and then passing it through. He's able to assess the picture quicker than most young midfielders I've ever seen. I think it's one of the things we normally say is a knock against Curtis Jones. He doesn't see that picture quick enough. Bellingham sees it. And he's not always going to be able to execute. I mean, he's not a perfect player. He's still 19, for goodness sake. But I think his awareness of what he should be doing and what to do is what elevates him. And his abilities are going to be able to help him do that more often than not. I think the, the fact he's 19 is, is insane, to be honest. He, he is incredibly good and has very, very few weaknesses for a player of that age, it's, it's quite incredible. You can understand why Liverpool are prioritising him and why Real Madrid are maybe even looking at him despite having Chiuameni, Camavinga, Valverde. They don't really need Bellingham as much as Liverpool do, but they seem interested regardless, and it's, it's just because of how good he is, really. Um, I wrote a piece on the back of his performance against Germany. I thought he was kind of... For, for me, right, he, he he's the kind of absolute example of what a Premier League centre mid is, is should be according to the according to many according to the country basically you know we we tend to like these like if you picture this the traditional Spanish midfielder what do you picture you picture a, a pass master who's maybe a bit slight he's a bit he's very technical a bit lightweight very clever if you picture the, the traditional German centre mid, maybe you picture someone who's a bit functional, a bit disciplined, uh, almost a bit, yeah, a bit robotic almost. If you picture an English centre mid, for me, I picture like an all-rounder who can do it all, real box-to-box, physical, someone like a Gerard essentially. And uh, the Premier League seen loads of those over the years. Yaya Torre fits the mould. Mm-hmm. Um, Roy Keane to a lesser extent. Um, Frank Lampard to a slightly lesser extent. Patrick Vieira is right up there for the, for the type of player that I'm describing. And I think Bellingham has, has absolutely got that kind of game where he's just kind of pretty much good at everything and has the physicality to be arriving late in the penalty box and nicking a goal, or in this case, winning a penalty. And then, you know, providing like a, a last-ditch slide tackle at the opposite end, you know, 15 seconds later. Yeah, I think you can tell that Steven Gerrard was his hero growing up because yeah. he does want to do it all and he believes he can do it all. And 
so far there's been nothing to prove that he can't. So I think so much of the the, um, the decision over where he ends up is going to be down to what he wants. Because like you say, Real Madrid don't need him. And if Real Madrid were going to buy him, they were going to buy him and use him in a very specific... They're basically going to use him to replace Modric because they've already got the rest of their midfield in place if you look at Chiromeni and Karim Mavinga. So they have basically regenerated what they did um, 10 years ago perfectly. But it does mean you're going to play there, you're going to do this. With Liverpool, it's different. Liverpool, we've got a blank canvas, really, when it comes to the midfield. So we can say to him, look, you there, we will put everything else around you. We will give you the space to do all the Steven Gerrard things. We'll give you an Alonso. We'll give you a Mascherano. And then you can just go out and paint pretty pictures. Now, I personally think that if we this is what we're telling him, then that's going to be quite appealing to him. Yeah, I, I, just to provide a bit of context and say like his ability to kind of contribute across the board, really basic numbers, but again, just for a bit of context, no England player took more shots than Bellingham on three. No England player suffered more fouls than Bellingham on three. No England player won more tackles than Bellingham. And no England player made more interceptions than Bellingham. Uh, they're just for very basic departments. Obviously, he won the penalty as well. Mm-hmm. Um, just across the board, I thought he was very good. As we said last week, I think Jack of all trades kind of sums it up. Um, but then the follow-up usually to the Jack of all trades is master of none. And I wouldn't say I wouldn't say that applies to Bellingham. I think he's just he's just very very well rounded. And mm-hmm. if you look at what he offers as a player, he's he's just so unique for his age. You know, considering he's nineteen, he, it would be a bit more normal if he was twenty five. But he's like he's like nineteen, so he's just ridiculously good, basically. And I, I was really impressed by by how he performed in a midfield too as well with with, with Rice because I, I upon an inspection of what he offers I would naturally say he's in he's a box to box number eight but even as as a double six he he still looked absolutely fine didn't look like he was trying to get to grips with a new role or anything like that I know he plays it week in week out at Dortmund this season but it's still that that ability to adapt between different positions is again one of the reasons why um, Liverpool are interested in him and another one of the reasons why he maybe does compared to the likes of Wijnaldum and Gerrard in, in that versatile sense? I think so. I think the other thing with him is that it relates a lot to who you've got around him, like I said before. So while he plays in the double pivot at, Bo- at Dortmund, it helps give them that defensive solidity. So that allows their centre-backs to be a little bit more relaxed and be able to come out and um, bring the ball out of defence when they need to. But it also gives the forwards a bit more protection. So... Him being there doesn't give you as much of his game as is at pure optimum, but it does allow everybody else on the pitch to do theirs. And that's the kind of give and take that he allows you. Sometimes it's like, no, I want 100% peak Bellingham. Go out there and do your thing. And sometimes it's like, our team is serviced better by you doing this. And it's not like you're kind of curbing his instincts. You are still getting a very fantastic player, but just one who's allowing other people to do other things as well. And like you say, it's so unique to have a guy like that. And I am careful of trying not to hype people up to be the greatest I've ever been, etc., etc. But 
I do feel like I've seen enough of him to feel confident in what I'm saying. So there's that. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think a lot of the hype is justified. At, at the same time, I don't think he's necessarily he's not inclined to get you out your seat net per se, is he? He's not, he's not like a um well a moderate really. I, I think Modric is a bit more possesses a bit more stardust, maybe, but Be- Bellingham is just kind of really good at everything, but without really doing too much almost in, in certain cases. You see what I'm saying there? Yeah, no, I think so. Again, it's about making the best choice in the moment, and the best he's, choice in the moment... He's extremely functional, that's probably a good way of putting it. Yeah. Um, I would say, though, he probably does need to start scoring more goals. Like, we mentioned he took more shots than anyone. A couple of those, well, one of, I think one of them at least he slipped as he was striking it. And then there was the one late from the set from the corner where he hit it over, where he knows he should have done better. If he can add those, because, I mean, again, that is something that Steven Gerrard was very good at. And we know that he wants to do everything, get Gerrard can. So if I was going to give him any tips, me, 40-year-old man, giving 19-year-old football genius any tips, <laughs> he'll be working on your shooting. Yeah, maybe those is, that's just a little bit of composure in the final moments or whatever. Wayne Allen was very good at doing that. Um, yeah. But I know Bellingham has popped up with a few goals against Manchester City, so maybe he ticks the whole big game player box, whatever that even means. Um, but I thought it was interesting that Bellingham played next to next to Rice and did very, very well with him. And I think if you look at the Liverpool squad, the player who probably compares to Rice stylistically is probably Fabinho in terms of that holding player who will kind of sit and allow his partner, if it's a, if it's a midfield two, that is, mm-hmm. to kind of play a little bit around the corner and wander a little bit more. Um, if you think of a few years back when Chelsea won the Premier League, for example, with Antonio Conte, Matic was the sitter, and Conte was the kind of, well, he was everywhere, wasn't he? And I think in this case, looking at England, Rice was that player, and, and Bellingham was allowed to just kind of do his thing almost. And If you look at Liverpool, Fabinho would be well suited to that. If that was a two, Thiago would be on the bench, so I'm not sure we'd have options all of a sudden. Yeah, well, I mean, I think the other thing that was interesting about Bellingham is the way that when Mason Mount came on, he was able to link up with him really well. Obviously, him and Saka made a big impact when they came on, but if you think about the areas of the pitch Mount was operating for England in that game, it's very similar to where we often see Harvey Elliott in terms of that kind of right half-space in between the penalty area and the centre circle. So if we see Bellingham in there, because that's the other thing as well we need to think about, when we kind of add the guys who we've got and try to make a midfield with Bellingham, who suits what, who goes where, and that might be something that we end up seeing um, developing over time, if he comes. If he comes indeed, hopefully he does. (laughs) (laughs) I mean... It's going to be a disaster if he doesn't really, isn't it, at this stage? But it's hard not to get your hopes up when you're watching him play like that because he, he he does have that, just that all-round complete profile that you know would make a massive difference in your own midfield, especially if your midfield is suffering a little bit due to injuries or ageing profiles or something like that. So the impact yeah. of Bellingham, you used to put Bellingham in the current Liverpool team, massive difference, massive difference on his own. <laughs> Anfield on the Blood Red Channel. Um, aside from England, looking at the rest of the the international landscape, uh, Darwin Nunes scored nice. He got assisted by Luis Suarez as well, I think. Yeah. Uh, scored a header. 
um, played in in a front two four four two system. It's interesting that the idea of that Darwin with a a, a partner up front. Mm. I don't think it'll ever really be tested at Liverpool because we just don't really play like that. But maybe he's one of them players who. who... Sorry, there's a bit there's a bit of freezing there, so I'm not 100 percent sure. But I'm talking about the um, in terms of the idea of Nunes working with a partner. The interesting thing about that is you've got Suarez, who is very intelligent as a striker. So he knows what kind of balls a number nine wants. He kind of knows what kind of play number nine wants. So he can get into those areas. If you look about maybe Mo Salah, who, if you look at the ball, the area from where Suarez crossed the ball, that's the area of the pitch that Mo Salah often operates in. So you can see in terms of developing ideas about habits and what you like, that's something that is repeatable, even if Liverpool aren't necessarily going to have a strike duo. Yeah, well, I think maybe it just offers a bit of an insight into the, the, the need to kind of almost get players close to him, get players around him. We, we, we spoke about the whole need to maybe shift towards a 4-4-2 long-term to, to help him out, because I'm not saying yet that he's the type of striker that would lead the line on his own in a 4-3-3, like Firmino did. I'm not sure he's quite that player yet. I would like players, players to be closer to him, maybe a number 10 behind him to, to fill those spaces, but yeah, we'll see on that one. Aside from that, we have Luis Diaz, who played for Colombia and by all accounts has travelled a lot. So yes. in terms of his his um, prospects of starting maybe against Brighton, I would think maybe it's going to be a start against Rangers rather than Brighton. I think Luis Diaz might, might be on the bench. But in terms of all the Liverpool forwards, Salah obviously scored and then got a rest, sent home early, I think. And Diogo Jota also scored, so it's nice to have options again up front. It is, and it almost feels like, like you say, they almost answer themselves because Diaz played a lot in the internationals, but he's also played, look, I think he's nearly played 800 minutes in for Liverpool this season already, which is only less than Alisson and Van Dijk, and only a little bit less. So he is ripe for a rest, even though he's obviously not going to the World Cup. Diogo Jota seems to have come into a bit of form and rhythm playing for Portugal, playing from that left-hand side. So that kind of feels like an easy slot of Jota in there. And like you say, Nunes, yes, he was against Canada, but a goal's a goal and confidence is confidence. And while he's riding it, we need to ride it as much as possible. And I, like I said on previous shows, I think he only gets better with more minutes in the team. So I think if I was picking, I would expect to see Jota, Nunes, Salah, as a front three against Brighton. Yeah, do you know what's actually interesting about Nunes's um, Nunes's goal? He, he played against Canada, and up front for Canada it was Jonathan David. Yeah. Um, this is maybe going back a little bit before your time on this podcast, Mo. But um, we we tipped Jonathan David as a bit of a player for Liverpool. Never ended up actually signing him in the end. But he was on Liverpool's shortlist supposedly when Liverpool tried to get. Diogo Jota. I think it's interesting that eventually Liverpool went for Darwin Nunes. Um, mm. And if you weigh up both of the players, they are quite different. Both obviously strikers predominantly, but Nunes has got that that physical edge, I suppose, standing around six foot two, six foot three. I think he's quicker across the ground. But I think Jonathan David is a bit more inclined to engage in build up play and things like that. But it's just I thought that was just an interesting little side note, considering the different directions you can go yeah. in based on who you sign in the transfer market. 
sliding doors. Now, I, as, as someone who's been doing European shows for two different people for a while, I'm very, very much aware of the skills of Jonathan David. I think he would... I, I said at the time, and I still say now, I think he would have been great in our team. Still might be. We'll have to wait and see. Yeah, still at Lille. Um, aside from that, we have midfielders who are doing okay. Thiago's had a two-week break, which is mm-hmm. great news for everybody. Jordan Henderson is back. He came on for Jude Bellingham, funnily enough. Both players were in the red shirt, swapping yeah. swapping seats on the pitch, which I thought was interesting. And uh, Van Dijk as well scored a goal. So Liverpool have had a decent little break. Van, Van Dijk scored a, a header from a, an in-swinging corner rather than the yeah. outswinger, which is what we usually see at Anfield. See, um, go on. I was just going to say about Virgil, it's an interesting one because he has probably had a bit of a knock to his own confidence in a way that he hasn't for ages. So you can say that yeah. maybe that international goal will be good for him. It'll be back to normal Virgil, get him in the team, bang, bang, bang. But Virgil's played loads. Like, I mean, Liverpool played less games than other Premier League teams, but Virgil's nearly played a thousand minutes for club and country this season. And he is going to the World Cup. And he is going to be needed against Arsenal and against Manchester City. And probably as a former Celtic player, I had circled both games against Rangers as well. <laughs> so Brighton might be the only time you get to give him a rest. Now, yeah. you've, we've seen Matt Matip. He's, he's not played internationals. He's retired. Gomez is not getting picked. Canate should be back in training, I believe, from today. So... Klopp has the ability to say to Virgil, I'm saving you for bigger battles down the road. Whether he will or not, I don't know. I'd be tempted. Yeah, I suppose one, one benefit of of the international schedule is that he he played on Sunday against Belgium and now he's got a he's got a week off essentially until until Brighton. Um whereas England played, I think, on Monday. Um but Virgil looked good for, for Holland. You know, he played twice for the Netherlands and, and two clean sheets, which is good for his confidence, as you say. Scored a goal. Uh, insisting that he actually played as part of a back three for Van Gaal in, in the centre. Um, I likened his, uh, his role to, to Benucci during this time at Juventus um, with, with Conte. A little bit of like that quarterback in the centre of the defence yeah. almost. Well, it's um, less conversion for him, which is good for us. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, but it's interesting to see how Liverpool's international play has gone anyway. I mean, there's, there's no... Off the top of my head, I'm not sure if you can correct me on this, Mo, there's no no injuries, is that right? No injuries been picked um, up? Touching wood, but no, I'm saying no. In fact, let me, let me check the the internet for that. But it appears <laughs> there have been no new names added. Nope, no new names, thankfully. Some her names hopefully coming off, like I mentioned, Canate, maybe even um, Ramsey and Kelleher as well. So we'll see how that goes. Yeah, so Liverpool almost back f- back to full strength, if you like, against for the upcoming match against Brighton, who look like an insistent prospect at the minute because they, they haven't played for about a month and they now have a new coach and they've got a bit of upheaval in the team, if you like, considering, you know, Cucurella recently left. I'm not sure they've played since he left, to be honest. Um, no. In fact, he might have played once or twice, actually. Uh, but do, what do you know then of uh, of, of Roberto De Zerbi, if anything? I mean, he's he's uh, not really known on Liverpool on uh, English radars, really. 
No, I mean, it's difficult to say because his style that he played when he was with Sassuolo wasn't necessarily the same as the style he played for Shakhtar. And obviously they are at different points within their league system. So Shakhtar are always going to be the dominant team. So they're going to be able to play a more possession-based football. Whereas with Sassuolo, they were still trying to hit on the break to a certain extent. It's a really interesting conundrum because normally when you've got a new manager who comes in for a manager who was successful, then you just say, well, let's just keep it going. There's no point changing things that aren't broken. But like you say, he's had quite a long time in with the squad, or at least to have an idea of what he wants to do. How much time he's actually had with the players, we don't know, because obviously some of them have been away all around the world on internationals. So you don't know if he's going to do something drastic, something unknown. So from Klopp's perspective, it's difficult to plan for. You look at the way that they played this season, they've been playing three at the back, packing midfield and having... Um, Enoch Mwepu alongside um, Danny Welbeck looking for Alexis McAllister and Trossard to join from midfield. That seems to work. But then you look at how they played against us in the 2-2 draw at Anfield last season, and it was a very different story. They were playing a four. They had Mwepu in midfield as a double pivot alongside Basuma, and Trossard was the highest man forward. So they gave us a lot of trouble with that game. So you can understand maybe that they would look to go back to maybe that kind of tactics so for Liverpool you can't really say oh we're definitely they're going to definitely do this so we should do this so I think Liverpool's tactics should be based on getting the best out of us and hoping that they can't deal with whatever it is that we're doing Analyzing Anfield on the Blood Red Channel I, I don't think it will be that different overall to, to facing Potter's Brighton in a way. Maybe it'll be a little bit more expansive. Um but I think it's it's certainly not an easy game to come back to. No. But it's not it's not the hardest either. So I'm not really sure how to how to weigh this one up considering after this game we do have a serious run of fixtures. I think we've got Arsenal and City coming up, haven't we? Mm-hmm. And the two Rangers games. And I think yeah. for Brighton it's difficult because they're obviously and they've done very well in the league. They're what fourth in the league right now? Yeah. But they've not played for a month. So yeah. all of that positivity and build-up momentum could have disappeared. And as we said also, the last time they played, they had a different manager. So you can easily see how any of the confidence that they built up from their early season start could have started to wane. But you never know. You've got the new manager bounce, new ideas that can bring energy. So as I said before, it really does suit Liverpool to concentrate on getting what we're doing right and see how it affects them. Because essentially, that's what we did in the first half of the game last season. We started fantastically well, went 2-0 up, could have been three. I had one just left for VAR. It's cruising. And then Mwepu scores a goal, which some people might say was fortunate, but it, it came out of the blue. And suddenly the game changes Brighton have a lot more confidence. Liverpool aren't able to get their passing network going. And we've seen with Liverpool at the moment, confidence is still quite fragile. So a good start, an early goal, and building on that is, I think, really important for this game. Yeah, 3pm fixture in our field. You know, lots of players with with a few days off and things, lots of players back from, from injuries and things like that. So 
overall it should be a strong side for Liverpool. I think the only department really that looks maybe up for debate is is the front line, considering Diaz has travelled a lot and played a lot. I think he's played every game so far this season for Liverpool in the Premier League. So up front for me, Mo, I think you probably have Salah. Um, I think I'd go with Nunes and Jota, maybe. But he, Firmino's looked good lately and I don't think he's played too much for Brazil. So again, we have options there, but I would like to see moving forward now that we've had a couple of weeks to think about this, Klopp's been able to sit with Linders, I'm, I'm assuming, and, and weigh things up. I would like moving forward for Liverpool to make Nunes a bit more of a key cog to, to work around almost. For me, it feels a little bit like so far he's been just deployed like he's another one of Liverpool's multifunctional forwards, like another Jota or another you know, whoever it may be. But looking at him, I'm just increasingly of the belief that you need to kind of accommodate this man. You need to kind of switch things up a little bit to supply him in a, in a bit of a different way and things like that. And sometimes, as I mentioned earlier about the 4-3-3 and whether he's entirely suited to leading the line on his own. I think he can occupy defenders, of course, but I would just like moving forward after this international break between now and the World Cup to see Nunes go on a bit of a run become a bit more of an established member of the team and look a bit more integrated than he has done. Yeah, I think so. I agree. I think within the dressing room and the coaching staff, that's probably their job number one as well. Like you say, make him feel more comfortable because at the moment, he doesn't look comfortable on the pitch. He looks like he's either overanalyzing himself or yeah. he's aware that everybody else is. So yeah. for him to feel more comfortable, I think you're right. Get people around him. Little one, two touch moves. Little just ones and twos and getting around the defenders that way. And I think there is a really simple way to do that. It's to go back to a little bit more what we've been doing previously. Make sure fullbacks are using full width of the pitch. Make sure they are high and attacking which means that Salah and Jota or Diaz will be naturally come closer to Nunes. I think we shouldn't be afraid of the idea of using occasional long balls up to his head and then having players around him to get the second balls and then bring him back into play immediately and use that as a way of getting him into it. Obviously, that does rely on him winning most of those duels and the problem with playing that, the reason we don't do it a lot, is that it's a lot. Le- it's a lot easier to lose possession that way compared to playing a long ball out to the wide flank, where if it goes wrong, you can just kind of shut it down a bit easier. But I think these are the kind of adaptations we need to do in terms of the risk and reward. To, like you say, try and get him more involved, try and get him a little bit more comfortable in his game. But also, if we got these um, fullbacks high and wide, then they're going to be putting crosses in from those areas. And as we just saw in midweek, that's where he likes the ball. Yeah, we, I mean, obviously we don't want to get kind of too harsh on things and like that because we, we're talking about getting him more involved, but he he has already posted 15 shots in the Premier League so far. Um, for a bit of perspective, that's that's two fewer than Salah, who has played every single minute of the of the season so far. Nunes, for a for a bit of perspective, has only played one about one point <laughs> nine. Sorry about that. <laughs> Still with me? About 1.990s Nunes has played. So he's already on 15 shots. Again, mm-hmm. two fewer than Salah, two fewer than Diaz. 
who've both featured non-stop throughout the Premier League. So he's definitely involved in that sense. It's just making him, as you say, making him look a bit more comfortable, making him look a bit more at home, mm. uh, a bit less panicked almost. Uh, but it's one to watch. Liverpool have a big schedule coming up, lots of busy, lots of games coming up. So um, I'm sure we'll see see enough to analyse moving forward, Mo. Oh, yeah, plenty. I'm looking forward to actually watching some Liverpool football. Like, I was okay. not expecting it to be this big a break in the middle of the season. So I was not happy for it. But yeah, hoping to see some good play. Hoping a big win is the start of a really big period, as you said. Yeah, well, thanks for joining us anyway, mate. That's uh, the, the last of the international break um, podcasts up until the World Cup, at least. God knows how we'll survive that one. But uh, yeah, thanks for tuning in. You've been listening to the Analyzing Anfield podcast on the Blood Red channel.